Broadcasting from Moscow, Idaho. This is the Campus Preacher Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode 77, Matthew's False Prophetic Fulfillment. Welcome, everybody, to the Campus Preacher Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, FLF Network. Dot com or crosspolitic.com. Actually, if you go to crosspolitic.com, that's a little more up-to-date website than the flfnetwork.com site. And if you go to crosspolitic.com, you can learn a little bit more about a rally we were having in Cedar Rapids, South Dakota, April 29th through Saturday, May the 1st. So it goes from Thursday to a Saturday in an absolutely beautiful part of the country. And I'm not sure if there is an itinerary up and atom just yet, but we're going to have... Uh, yeah, we're meeting in South Dakota in part because they are a pretty free state. So I don't believe they've ever had any sort of mask mandates or anything like that. And I was actually driving through there a few weeks ago and stopped into a coffee shop and they were not wearing masks. And it actually threw me off for a split second. So if you are free at the end of April, I realize uh, the southwestern corner of South Dakota is not a place where tons of people live or hang out, but it's an absolutely beautiful part of the country. And you can go see Mount Rushmore, the Black Hills, and uh, even... I don't want to sound like a pagan, but it's even kind of like spooky, sacred Indian territory. And there's something, it's kind of like if you've ever been to like Gettysburg or Civil War uh, sites, battle battle sites, uh, there, there's something kind of haunting about it. So anytime I'm in uh, southwestern South Dakota, I always kind of have this vibe of like, yeah, something mystical going on. So hopefully I don't sound too pagan to you, but uh, that's that's how I feel whenever I'm there. And it's definitely a beautiful part of the country and worth going to. And so this week, what I want to talk about, uh, I'm going to continue basically the idea of how Matthew is arguing for the fulfillment of Scripture. Because one of the things, when you're doing apologetics and you're evangelizing, one of the key things you can have is a good hermeneutic, a good reading of the Bible. If you're reading the Bible wrong, you're going to get so many things wrong. And so early, for example, early on in my Christian life, whenever I'd come across a term flesh, I largely understood that to be kind of physical desires and physical ideas. And if that's the case, you're going to really mess up what Paul is driving at with the flesh rather than human weakness and sinfulness and kind of a more of a directional issue away from God. And the spirit is a thing that restores creation. Uh, I kind of had a theology that made me want to escape creation and we often have that, that we think salvation is the immortality of the soul and the soul escaping the body. And so if you have a bad hermeneutic, you're going to have bad theology. And one of the things that's often going to come up from an unbeliever when they raise objections of how Jesus cannot have fulfilled the scriptures or whatever it may be, much of that is actually a hermeneutical issue. It's not a direct argument. So a direct argument is something along the lines of, hey, I have $100. You don't have $100 and you pull $100 out of your pocket, you know, then from there, you have to verify that it's actually a Federal Reserve note and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it's a, then it becomes a little bit of a longer discussion. But the reality is you kind of have a direct evidence or proof of your position that here we go, we have $100. Now, your hermeneutic is going to be a little bit different. So thinking of being in South Dakota, if someone hands you 100 wooden nickels, you're going to be like, ah, that's not really valid currency. Now, maybe 400 years ago, some wooden nickels or whatever it would be, whatever wampum, whatever uh, the natives would have been using, that would have been valid currency for them. But in our system, uh, you know, 
100 wooden nickels or 100 wampum or whatever it would be would not be considered having $100. And so the idea of a hermeneutic is vitally important on really anything that we're interacting with. And many of us share a lot of the same assumptions about reality, what money is, uh, what the police should be doing or should not be doing. Uh, you know, we're starting to change more as like diversity enters the picture. But you know, traditionally, we believed in free speech, the right to bear arms, due process, and that sort of stuff. As Americans, we kind of have a shared cultural assumptions regarding democracy and all that sort of stuff. But as that divide gets bigger between us and the unbeliever, uh, our hermeneutic about the way reality works and how we understand the world and even the unbelievers, like how can you have any understanding of that text that you can interpret it any way you want? And so our hermeneutic and our approach to scripture is vitally important as we engage in apologetics. And especially like I gave the illustration last week or two weeks ago, rather, in Isaiah chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 1 with respect to the fulfillment of Jesus' virgin birth, uh, I was actually stumped a few years back when a Jew said, no, Isaiah 7 is not about Jesus. So how do we go about understanding how Isaiah 7 and other texts, especially as used by Matthew, is actually about fulfillment of Jesus? Now, before I get into that, I do want to say thank you very much to Jeremy for sending me an email, and I, uh, I actually did end up responding, but I thought he had a really poignant insight and observation into the text. Uh, And I'm just going to read his email. He says, I enjoyed your recent podcast. Thank you very much. Um, On the Virgin Birth and Tyrants. And all of you are free to email me anytime telling me that you enjoyed my recent podcast. Um, As I was doing my nature walk and listening, I had a thought. You mentioned that in the Isaiah passage, the pending attack on Judah was an attack on Davidic messianic lineage. Isaiah 7.16 says, but before the boy knows... Uh, enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Well, Matthew quotes, the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son. Then the holy family flee to Egypt until King Herod dies. Then Matthew says, Joseph takes the family to the region of Nazareth because he fears the next king, Archelius, I believe is how you pronounce that, Herod's son. My NIV study Bible notes say Archelius only ruled for about a decade from 4 BC to 6 AD. After that, he was deposed, and Judea became a Roman, a Roman province administered by prefects appointed by the emperor. All this before Jesus would have been at the age of accountability. So, is a death removal of these two feared kings, who were a threat to the Davidic messianic lineage, another part of the fulfillment of Isaiah seven? What do you think? I would say absolutely. Um, and I and you know, it's not all uh, perfect, but um, in all these things, like. The, the nature of typology is not always one-to-one, but I think that's an absolutely, like, that's a, that's a sort of thing that, like, if you end up listening to one of these podcasts and you're reading the text and you walk away with that, like, it's almost like, I love it. I'm done. Like, that's how I, I, that's how I want you thinking about the text and interacting with the text and thinking about these things and realizing, yeah, what is all going on in Isaiah 7? What's all going on in Matthew? And some that's going to have to do historical legwork, like grab your NIV study notes and see what they're saying about these times and see how these things play out. And you'll begin to see all these dots and all these connections that are there and we're not stretching the text. And it's actually... Going all the way back to Moses, you know, there's an attack on the seed. And and just your basic biblical pattern is you have an attack on the seed, and then you have the one who's attacking the seed gets crushed. So Pharaoh attacks the seed, he gets crushed. Herod attacks the seed, he gets crushed. The Jews are attacking the seeds, they get they get crushed. Um, and so you just kind of have this pattern throughout the scriptures. And we have to realize that, that Jesus is the ultimate son of God. And that's even kind of tied in. He's the ultimate seed. He's the ultimate fulfillment of the seed. And that ties into what I want to get into today, because in Matthew chapter 2, um, it's kind of one of these 
famous passages that are kind of knotted and everybody has a different interpretation. Um, and I would just say that if you have a strict historical grammatical interpretation of scripture, um, if you're kind of a dispensationalist and you want to be literal, I would say there's no good way from where I sit to get Matthew's use of Hosea chapter 11 to fit that paradigm. So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 2 and we'll uh, briefly delve into this. Now, when they had departed, this is starting verse 13, uh, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. So if you go back to Hosea chapter 11, and I just did a Bible reading podcast. I don't know if it's been published yet um, on the book of Hosea. And unfortunately, we did not get into Hosea chapter 11 and Matthew's use of it. That would have probably been helpful to people reading the text. But if you go back to Hosea chapter 11, it's very clearly an historical proclamation of what happened. So here's Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and uh, burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them, and I fed them. And so the basic idea of what's going on in the book of Hosea is— Israel is an apostate nation, and you're probably familiar with Gomer, the wife of Hosea, who's an adulterous woman. That's symbolic of Israel's adultery um, and idolatry. And so, you, and there are many things in the scriptures, uh, types and shadows that go. So Israel can be the bride of Christ. Also, if you read in the book of Exodus, they are God's firstborn son. Uh, so, so even Jesus is is the uh, only begotten. So he's the preeminent firstborn son. So, so even this idea that Israel is a firstborn son, and you find Jesus as being the firstborn son. All these ideas are kind of intertwined. And so what's going on in Hosea is they are an apostate, rebellious nation. And God, in chapter 11, is recounting their history of how out of Egypt he called his son. And so this, according to Matthew, finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Now, much of what's going on in Matthew's gospel, if you were to sit down and you just— if you were to just read, say, the first seven chapters of Matthew's gospel, and you have— a thoroughgoing knowledge, at least a, a, a pretty good working knowledge of, say, the book of Exodus, you would find a lot of parallels of what's going on between Jesus uh, and Matt or, and Moses or the Israelites. And these are from Peter Lightheart's book on a commentary on Matthew. Um, and so here are some of the parallels that he sees. In Matthew 2, 13 through 15, Herod kills children. That parallels early on in the book of Exodus that Pharaoh kills children. Matthew chapter 2, 14, Jesus is rescued and he flees. And then in Exodus chapter 2, Moses rescues and flees. In Matthew chapter 2, 19 through 23, Jesus returns to Israel. And in Exodus 3 through 4, Moses returns to Israel. And then in Matthew 3, 13 through 17, Jesus is baptized or passes through water. Exodus 16, the Israelites pass through water. In Matthew 4, 1 through 11, uh, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. Now, uh, Lightheart connects this with Exodus 17 through 19 of Israel being tempted. I would take much more Matthew 4, 1 through 11 uh, if you were to hop in the book of Numbers, and I think that's even why Jesus was tempted 40 days and 40 nights. They were tempted for 40 years, and he... Jesus fights them off with the word of God of what's going on in Deuteronomy. And so rather than the Israelites, rather than 
believing the word of God, they crum- uh, they they grumbled against God. So rather than seeing Exodus 17 through 19, you can kind of get that to fit. Um, I, I think the book of Numbers is a, a much better fit. <clears throat> then in Matthew 4, 18 through 22, Jesus calls the 12 disciples, which um, you know, he, Lightheart wants to be God calling Israel, but I would see it just much more of a simple parallel between the 12 disciples and the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is reconstituting Israel around himself. Jesus is the true Israel. He's the true firstborn son of God. So when you're reading these chapters of um, Matthew, what, what we're what we're understanding here is that Jesus is the faithful son. Jesus is the true Israelite. Uh, then Matthew 5 uh, through 7, you have the Sermon on the Mount, which parallels the idea of Mount Sinai and the giving of Torah. And so that's kind of the 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 basic gist. And and so what I the nutshell is what what I want you to get out of this is this. Jesus is Israel. And so when you're reading these stories out of Israel or out of Egypt, I called my son, he is referring broadly, the son is a corporate identity. And all throughout the Bible, you're gonna have a corporate and an individual identity. You have Israel, who is many people, um, identified as God's son. You have Jesus, who is God's son, as an individual, and yet we're gonna be his body. We're the body of Christ. And so you have this one and many kind of going back and forth in different directions. And sometimes it can be confusing. There are people who wanna argue, you know, who's the suffering servant Isaiah? Is it an individual or is it corporate? And we as Christians wanna say yes, because even going back to the Exodus, what's true of Moses with his escape from Pharaoh and destruction of the children kind of corresponds, finds its fulfillment also in Israel. And one of the patterns that we see is what's true of the head becomes true of the body. And so just as Jesus was ultimately risen from the dead, we also shall ultimately be risen from the dead. And this is from a guy named uh, R.T. France, who's a pretty solid theologian, but this is in reference to Matthew 2.5. He says this, In Egypt, then, God now kept his son safe, as he had preserved Israel there long ago, and out of Egypt, he would soon call him to his work of redemption, as he had liberated Israel from Egypt to fulfill their role as his people, indeed, as Hosea 11.1 explained, as his son. So Israel was to come up out of Egypt and be God's son. Adam was originally God's son, and now uh, basically Israel is almost like a reconstituted Adam, and that's going to fit well with what Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, of the first and the last Adam. And so he, yeah, so he, out of, Israel, out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea's words are not a prediction, but an account of Israel's origin. Matthew's quotation thus depends for its validity on the recognition of Jesus as the true Israel, a typological theme found elsewhere in the New Testament and most obviously paralleled in Matthew by Jesus' use of Israel's text in the wilderness. Um, we ever so briefly brushed on that in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. There too, it is uh, as God's son that Jesus is equated with Israel. Israel's exodus from Egypt was taken already by the Old Testament prophets as a prefiguring of the ultimate messianic salvation, and Matthew's quotation here thus reinforces his presentation of the childhood history of Jesus as a dawning of the messianic age. And so when you read the early chapters of Matthew and it's talk about fulfillment and some of these passages, be it the Isaiah passage, if you go back to the original context, you're like, how does this fit? And you go to back to the Hosea passage, you're like, how does this fit? The way it fits in the most simple nutshell form, Jesus is the true Israel. All that was to be true of Israel as God's firstborn son finds its fulfillment in God's only begotten son. He's the true Israelite. He's the faithful Israelite that fulfills all the scriptures. And even if you were to spend more time in the prophets, maybe I'll do a series on death and resurrection in the Old Testament, uh, what you have 
even going, if you think of Abraham offering up Isaac, you basically have a death and resurrection story there. He was going to offer him up, he gets him back. Joseph being sold by his brothers down to Egypt is a type of death. And then what happens to him? He's resurrected and restored to the place of preeminence, and he ends up forgiving his brothers, the Jews, but he also feeds the nations, just as what Jesus does through his death and resurrection. And that's who Israel was to be. They were dead, so to speak, down in Egypt, and they're to be resurrected in the, prom- the promised land. Then in Exodus 19, they're identified as a royal priesthood and a holy nation. So they were separate from God. But as priests, they're supposed to minister to the nations as well, is what they're supposed to be doing in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And all those things find their fulfillment, as Matthew argues, in Jesus. So when we're arguing that Jesus fulfills the scriptures, we're not in a simple grammatical historical idea understanding Hosea 11 as being predictive prophecy per se— but it's typological in nature. So hopefully that's helpful in getting into these texts. And and, and the main thing, I, I realize I threw out a lot of information there, but the basic idea is like once you begin to hear it over and over and over and over again, you begin to see it yourselves. And as you're reading the passages, you'll just see this Exodus pattern, even going all the way back to the very beginning of creation is a type of Exodus that the you have the the flood waters over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God hovering there. Then he parts and he dr- brings forth dry land just as he does in the Exodus. And so this this... My point is that it just becomes this pattern that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And the, the minute you begin to see that pattern, all the scriptures fit together as a beautiful puzzle. And you still have some pieces that, you, oh, how does this fit? How does this fit? We have the borders. We have the edges. How does this all fit? Um, but, but you'll begin to see that pattern. And so when you're interacting with people and they're asking, how does Jesus fulfill these things? Uh, you can argue that he's the true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. And he died and he ministers to the nations. And now he's feeding us. So hopefully that's helpful in this episode of the Campus Reach Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to reach out to me, Keith, at campuspreacher.com. Campus Evangel on the Twitter, Campus Preacher on Instagram, and Keith Darrell on Facebook. May the Lord bless you, keep you, talk to you next week. Knowing that the harvest might well come before the bloom, he runs on his way, there's no time to.